Looking at the bells that still can ring, I've been telling some uh, friends in Oma, where I live, uh, and in England, folk that I work with, uh, what I've been doing, and they found the whole concept fascinating. Uh, even those friends of mine who may be agnostic or atheist or whatever sort of go, oh, that's quite an interesting thing. So who knows, Steve, we may start something. We, we, we'll go racing around the known universe doing these seminars together or whatever. I don't know. Uh, so first week, we, we looked really at the scriptures, from the Bible to the scriptures. Last week, we were looking uh, from dogma to experience. And tonight, it's from God to the divine. Uh, and I want to do a little bit of a recap uh, because this journey that we're on is a sort of cumulative one. Uh, and last week, do you know when you're, you're going on a long journey, anyone who treks by foot, there's always a part of it where, where there's a long, slow hill. And when you get over the top of that, you sort of realise where you're going and everything gets a little bit better. Uh, and last week's, in my own mind, was a bit like the, the, the long, slow hill that we had to trudge up and we're sort of near the crest of it, and I think we see some very interesting territory um, before us. So I do want to do a little bit of recap, and then we move into that territory. But I'm going to read, start by reading a poem by A. A. Milne, he of Winnie the Pooh fame that we would all know. Uh, and it's called Explained. And remember, our topic tonight is From God to the Divine. Elizabeth Ann said to her nan, please will you tell me how God began? Somebody must have made him so. Who could it be? Because I want to know. And nurse said, well. And Anne said, well, I know you know, and I wish you'd tell. And nurse took pins from her mouth and said, now then, darling, it's time for bed. Elizabeth Ann had a wonderful plan. She would run round the world till she found a man who knew exactly how God began. She got up early, she dressed and ran, trying to find an important man. She ran to London and knocked at the door of the Lord High Doodledum's coach and four. Please, sir, if there's anyone in, however and ever did God begin? The Lord High Doodledum lay in bed. But out of the window, large and red, came the Lord High Coachman's face instead. And the Lord High Coachman laughed and said, Well, what put that in your quaint little head? Elizabeth Ann went home again and took from the Ottoman Jennifer Jane. Jennifer Jane, said Elizabeth Ann, tell me at once how God began. And Jane, who didn't care much for speaking, replied in her usual way by squeaking. What did it mean? Well, to be quite candid, I don't know, but Elizabeth Ann did. Elizabeth Ann said softly, Oh, thank you, Jennifer. Now I know. Isn't that a great poem? <laughs> I think it's just absolutely super. And I didn't know it uh, until a few weeks ago. Uh, explain. That's the explanation of how God began. So if you want to know, well, you find your raggedy doll or whatever the equivalent is, and you sit and you ask he, she, or it, and wait for the answer, like Elizabeth Ann. 
So from God to the divine, I'm going to recap. Uh, first week we were looking uh, from the Bible to the scriptures. And what I was saying there uh, was that there are lots of ways of looking at the scriptures or the Bible, as we well know. In this part of the world, we tend to look at the Bible as that single volume of 66 books, isn't it? Uh, bound together, the Old Testament, the New Testament, in which there's a narrative that runs all the way through, and there's a theology that runs all the way through, and there's a golden stream of consciousness and theology that not, that not only runs all the way through, but a bit like Blackpool Rock, wherever you open up the Bible, you'll find the story of salvation imprinted there, uh, whether it's in Job or John or Joshua or any other uh, book beginning with J. And I'm suggesting there's a different way of looking at it. That's fine. For those for whom that works, I never, ever, ever would want to try to disabuse anybody of anything. That's not the point of these little seminars. The point is to look at an alternative way that might work better for some other people. As I say, for those for whom the traditional path works, that's great. But I'm suggesting that a different way of looking and all of those writings found in what we call the Bible is that they are fully human documents based on individuals and communities recording and reflecting on their experiences, including, of course, their experience of Jesus or the event of Jesus' life uh, and their experiences of who or what they perceived as God or God's way or God's will. But they are fully, entirely human documents, which doesn't necessarily mean that they're not inspired because there are lots and lots of human documents that are completely inspired. Uh, some of the works of William Shakespeare might well lie uh, among those documents, or at least parts of them anyway. And we can all, always uh, think, I would imagine, of different poems or different writings or parts of books that we've read where we've gone. That is beyond me and surely it's even beyond the author's capacity to know what he or she was writing about so it's not putting the scriptures down at all to say that they are fully human documents then last week we were looking at the idea that experience really is the foundation of all human knowledge and we, we thought no matter where you look everything really that i know or think i know really comes down to my experience. And we, we can split that up uh, into, I suppose, what I'm now calling, I used to call experience, but since everything is now experience, uh, we, we, we can uh, talk about it uh, being our interactions with the environment around us or with other people uh, or spiritually with something above and beyond us. Uh, we can look at intuition, those moments that we all have in life where we just go, ah, I know that's it. Or if I, if I don't know that it's it, it certainly seems as if that's it to me. And sometimes we're right, sometimes we're wrong. Uh, and then reason. And that's the bit that the Christian church in virtually all of its manifestations or its mainstream manifestations in the West has really grasped. So whether we're looking at the scriptures or the history uh, of Christendom or our personal or communal uh, existence today, uh, I'm suggesting that experience is at the very heart of it. And so because that's the case, the people who were writing the scriptures were writing from their experience. The people who wrote the creeds and decided on the decisions of the great councils 
of the early church were writing from their experience, not just their personal and theological experience, but their social and their political experience as well as part of the Roman Empire. The people who came out with the great confessional statements at the time of the Reformation, the Augsburg Confession, if my history of Christ, the Christian church uh, is sort of poking me somewhere in the back of the head to say that was one such confession, the 39 articles in the Anglican tradition, uh, all of those people who wrote those confessions wrote them from their experience, politically, historically, theologically, socially, and so on. And then all of these statements of faith that we have by various bodies and groups, whether it's the Evangelical Alliance um, or even the Pro uh, Progressive Christian Network, uh, which says it doesn't really have uh, a statement of faith, but it's pretty darn close to it. Uh, just saying you don't have one doesn't mean to say you don't have one. You just presented rather differently, but you do tell people they don't necessarily have to believe it, but it's still a statement. All of those things are also born out of the experience of the people of the time. And what I want to suggest that because that is so, all the way from the scriptures, all the way through to the, the most recent little statement of belief or doctrine that you might come uh, across, we, there is no imperative for anybody to say, I must follow that. Now, people can if they choose to, if they feel that it works for them or it makes sense to them or they're convinced of it or by it. That's wonderful. But at no point can I see anyway any imperative where anybody can say, you must believe this and you must adhere to it. Why? Because I say so or because he said so. Well, why? Because he said so. Well, because... God told him so. Well, who said that God told him so? Well, he did, or I did. And so we go on in a sort of a spiraling, circular type of argument. And where we finished off last week, really, uh, was the idea that we've got to embrace our own experience. We've got to come to our own exploration of faith and understanding of life and ourselves, accepting that the only way we can come to it is in and through our own experience. There isn't any other way. There isn't anything, even if uh, in some incredibly mysterious way, Jesus of Nazareth, uh, as he existed in 25 AD uh, as a young man, even if he were in some totally bizarre way to walk through the doors of this building and stand here in front of us, what is that? It's still an experience. There's no such thing as an objective experience. There's only an experience. And by definition, all experiences are subjective. Uh, so if that 25-year-old Jesus of Nazareth were to walk in here, um, my experience of him would be different from Steve's experience, would be different from Roy's experience, and so on. And if we were to put all of our experiences together, we still wouldn't have a description of um, you know, video cameras or CCTV uh, or whatever might be there. And of course, the really, really, really interesting thing is if that were actually to happen, do you know what the CCTV cameras would capture? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> Which might just be what was going on that if we thought, oh, wouldn't it be great to get a, a video camera outside the empty tomb? We'd still be waiting there perhaps. And we would have Mary uh, Magdalene and uh, the, the, the other women and John rushing around going, oh, this is incredible. Who knows? Who knows? 
The point being that we have got to embrace the reality that our reality, the only reality we have, is that of experience. And of course, that includes my experience of relating with other people, so I'm not so locked away that my experience is insular. Uh, I accept my ex the experience of other people as I talk to them. I accept the experience of science and scientific research, while always recognizing that our entire system of science is based on what? What we believe, having talked together as human beings, we experience. And as I said, I think maybe in the first week, that if we had the senses of bats, which might be a brilliant thing, I, mean, I quite fancy that, Mike, but to be honest, um, then our entire, everything in our science virtually would be different because our understanding of the world around us would be totally different. Uh, if for some reason, I have no idea why, but if for some reason, instead of a decimal, uh, uh, mathematics based on, on, on decimal counting and, and so on, if it was based on the number eight, it may well be that our, certainly our uh, arithmetic would be entirely different, but that might also mean that some of the other branches of math, certainly ge geometry, trigonometry and so on, would be different as well. Uh, imagine if you were counting things in eight, you know, um, how many degrees would be in a circle? It probably wouldn't be 360, I have no idea. Uh, if we had a different experience of logic, where things were not either right or wrong, but they could be right, wrong, or indeterminate, which is pretty close to sort of, you know, to quantum mechanics, where, where things uh, exist, don't exist, or might exist, or some indeterminate state in between, then our whole system of philosophy would be different. So everything that we have comes down to experience, and I'm saying the sooner we embrace that uh, and fall in love with it, the better, because we, we can't chuck it out the window, uh, much as people might try or much as they might tell us to. Now, all of that in the background, from God to the divine. And I want to do a very quick, and this really will be a, a very quick tra tracing, uh, of Jesus and God. Uh, there are a number of books written about this. Um, do you remember the myth of God incarnate? Uh, back in the 1970s. Oh my goodness, Mike, you and I would remember because we were, um, well, it was probably after or before we had been going through college, maybe. Uh, it was around like late 70s or early 80s or whatever. Uh, and a number of notable, mostly Anglican theologians wrote a book called The Myth of God Incarnate. And my goodness, the universe collapsed in on itself. Uh, to be quickly followed by a, a group of evangelical Anglican scholars writing a book called The Truth of God Incarnate. Uh, and what the first group of people were trying to say was uh, we need to understand much more what we mean by the term God and much more uh, by what we mean by the term uh, myth uh, and then also what we mean by the term incarnate. And by the time they'd wrestled their way through that, they might not have been saying something quite as terrible and drastic as many people thought. But since then, that was the real, the real start popularly at a certain level, if you call that popular, uh, of theologians and New Testament scholars probing at the idea. And Bart Ehrman, who's uh, a writer that I really enjoy, uh, he, he wrote a book, I think it was he who wrote it, uh, How Jesus Became God, to be quickly followed by some evangelical scholars writing How God Became Jesus. But there we go. That's ju just, just the way in which it, it works. Uh, and when we you know, lift our eyes up and look at the scriptures and the Christian tradition and the Christian church uh, through the 
uh, through our own eyes rather than through the lens of what we've been told we have to believe uh, and the lens of, of that, that we've been taught, then it really is quite a question to ask. How did we get from an itinerant preacher who almost certainly uh, was very charismatic, very challenging, certainly did seem to be associated with crowds coming together, though it's hard to know what constituted a crowd really, but nonetheless, numbers of people coming together, uh, certainly with an interest in being healed, also hearing about his message of the kingdom of God, probably never at any period in his who knows, it might have been one year or it might have been three years because the gospel records don't really pin that down. Uh, never really having more than a few dozen real followers. Uh, and maybe even if we take Paul's statement that Jesus appeared to 500 brethren at once after his resurrection, uh, that, that was probably throwing in, you know, Aunt Sally uh, and, and the dog and the cat and, and some geese as well. Um, because the, the, the Jesus movement was not a mass movement during his life. Uh, and, and we know that because nobody else was really talking about him. Uh, we have to wait for about 60 years uh, or so before Josephus goes back and said, there, there was a man called uh, Jesus of Nazareth who was a prophet. And he gives him about two paragraphs in his um, history of the Jewish wars and history of the Jewish people. Um, and nobody else was going, oh my goodness, there's a mass movement going on led by this itinerant prophet and preacher uh, from Nazareth. So it was a small movement of people who clearly were utterly devoted to him and had a, an amazing experience, not just of being in his presence, but an experience of what they believed to be God and an experience of what they believed to be the risen presence of this Jesus after his crucifixion. How did we get from that to this is the second person of the Trinity incarnate? And by incarnate, we mean somebody who is simultaneously both fully, totally, and absolutely God and fully, totally, and absolutely uh, a male human being. And when we say that he is totally, fully, and completely God, that bit of the equation, uh, that means he was absolutely God. There wasn't any God outside of the God that he was incarnate. And there was the Father and the Holy Spirit who were also all totally, completely and absolutely God. But they weren't the same, but they weren't different. Well, they were different, but not in the way that you might think. Or maybe they were, and thereafter no one's ever really been able to say anything about the Incarnation or the Trinity that isn't heretical. So if you look at the great councils, how people came to talk about Jesus is God incarnate uh, and the God that he is incarnating, if there's such a verb, is the Logos, the second person of the Trinity. And what is the Trinity? The Trinity is one God, one substance, one Usius uh, in three um, persons um, or uh, hypostases, but not hypostases as was used uh, a century before that formula was put in because then hypostasis meant the same as usius. Are you with me? Of course you are. <laughs> it's phenomenally difficult 
But I have to say, it made sense to the uh, Greek theologians in the third, fourth and fifth centuries, or certainly fourth and fifth centuries, who were wrestling with trying to put together the developing tradition that became known as the Christian church. And at that point in time in its development, it made sense to them, even though it mostly made sense by saying, if you're going to be talking about Jesus, uh, you can't say this. And if you're going to be talking about God, you can't say that. Uh, so what's left in the middle, that's who Jesus was. And what's left in the middle of the things that you can't say, that's who God is. And that's who or what the Trinity is. And of course, the term Trinity is a Latin term, not a Greek term. Uh, and that rather messed things up because these nasty Latin Roman theologians started coming on the scene uh, and they didn't really see eye to eye or even speak the same language as the Greek theologians. So they used different words and didn't mean quite the same thing with their words as the Greeks meant by, th by theirs. But you've got to believe it. You've got to believe it if you're going to be orthodox. Uh, and it went so far in the Athanasian Creed that if you don't believe it, you're damned. Uh, whoever does not believe this in its entirety. Uh, anybody got a book of common prayer? Church of Ireland book of common prayer, the old one? No, don't, don't hand it to me. Uh, but find one or go online. Type in the Athanasian Creed. And I am totally convinced in, if anyone in their heart of hearts says that they understand it, in their heart of hearts, they're telling a lie to themselves. <laughs> I don't think anybody except maybe somebody with a brain of 17 planets understands the Athanasian Creed. And yet the Athanasian Creed says, if you don't believe this completely, totally and absolutely, you're damned. You're anathema. And the great um, traditions within the Christian church all go, that's right. Uh, or different variations of it. So my understanding of all of that is that as the people of the first few centuries of this event and experience that we call the Christian church, as they grappled with their experience of how they would understand God to be, and as they grappled with their experience of this sort of saviour that a saviour would be, and this sort of incarnation that a God incarnate could be. And they grappled with what the even earlier people grappled with when they were looking at the original scriptures written down that hadn't yet become the New Testament. And as they then further grappled with what was actually written in those statements and in, in those documents alongside the documents that didn't make the cut, that's what they came up with. And I would like to applaud them. I mean, it's, it's majestic in its philosophy. It's overwhelming in its intricacy. It is splendid in its language. It's an art form all of itself. But that's what it is. It's an art form in itself, of itself, in that time, for that time. And somehow it's got stuck in amber. So much so that I honestly... I really don't know. I've, I've never met anyone who's been able to explain it to me. You know, I, I went to theological colleges and union theological colleges when the divines of the Presbyterian Church set out to explain it. 
I went to the Church of Ireland Theological College where the divines of the Church of Ireland set out to explain it. I've been kicking around the Church of England uh, for a decade and, and a half. I have read lots and lots of theological tomes and I'm none the closer, none the wiser of really what they were saying. And the reason why that is so is that I'm not in their experience. And I can't be. I can't really get what they were saying. Uh, and if I get stuck in it, that really is what happens, in my opinion. We really genuinely do get stuck. So those are the great foundational documents of Christianity. Our foundational doctrines, the incarnation. Jesus is God incarnate. God is the Trinity. And when we get a little bit at the end, if someone would like to stand up uh, and, and say, uh, this is what the Trinity is, I'll explain it to you. Or the hypostatic union where Jesus is both fully God and fully man at the same time, uh, without division or also without mixing and all the rest of it. Not to mention that very early on in the Christian church's history, a whole group of churches split off and disagreed with the idea that Jesus is fully God and fully man in, 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 in the hypostatic union anyway. And they, they do that to this day. So then we get beyond that to closer to where we are today. Because I doubt, has anybody ever heard uh, a sermon being given on the Trinity? Not sure I understand it. Yeah, it, it, there's a great wee St. Patrick's Day video uh, that, that was on uh, YouTube and Facebook and all those things that, that, that we go on um, where you know, Patrick in the little cartoon was explaining the Trinity to these, you know, real, real you know, like, like bog standard Irish people, you know, just talking like, there's no Patrick, tell us about the Trinity. And he would go, well, it's, it's, it's like a shamrock. No, no, that's Sibelianism. And he'd go, all right. And then it's like, it's, no, that's modalism. Uh, the, 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 the Council of Carthage in 384 AD, you know. So the, no matter what came up, the yolk, the egg, ice, water, they were going, no, that's a heresy that was identified as not being right. Which sort of begs the question, if that's the case, what on earth makes us think that the core statement is right in the first place? But we fast forward uh, to what I used to call classical theism until I read... Uh, much more about it, and I realized that classical theism, which in a sense comes from the great uh, scholastic philosophers, uh, Thomas Aquinas and so on, in what we call the Middle Ages, uh, what they were saying actually um, is in some ways a bit closer to what I'm saying uh, later on in, the, in this little talk. Um, so instead of talking about classical theism, I've, I've termed it popular theism. This sort of God and Jesus stuff that most churches believe today. But I went on that historical bit because they all fall back on it. Their popular theism today all falls back on the incarnation and the Trinity as given truths. And if you take those away, popular theism uh, tends to collapse in on itself. So you'll recognize this maybe a little bit more than Sibelianism uh, and all of those um, heresies as well as uh, those... Uh, hypostases and ousiases and all the rest of it, ousia that we were talking about. So, in popular theism, God is a person. Yep. Now, let's not worry too much about what sort of person he is, but God is a person. Uh, and when we think of God, although we say we don't do this, and we're told not to, 
the minute we say God is a person, we cannot but think of a really, really big and good and best and better version of us. Because we are the only persons that we know. Uh, I remember, I may have said this in one of the previous seminars that I did here, that at the end of my first year uh, at Union Theological College, there was a, a question uh, on the um, doctrine paper, a systematic theology paper, is God a person? Uh, and I made the mistake uh, of leaving th this theology paper um, at a Christian Union meeting, and there was almost a riot. How dare Union Theological College and the theology faculty of Queen's University Belfast ask the question, is God a person? Uh, and people were virtually scribbling, of course he is, end of argument, of course he is. So no matter how we think of it or what we do about it, we say God is a person, uh, that really means God is the biggest and best version of a person that we can think of or imagine, but the only persons that we actually know are ourselves. And this is the really frightening bit. The only person that I really, really know is me. So inevitably, God is a bigger and better version of me. That works for me, actually. It works pretty well. But there's more to that. I mean, that, that, that's a bit cheeky. But there's more to that than I think meets the eye. Uh, because I suspect that really is what we do. Now, that might not be such a bad thing, but it certainly is from the point of view of, of, of um, popular Christian theism, which says, no, that's not the right way to think of it. Now, this person is uh, triune, trinity even if we really don't have a baldy clue what that means. And I agree with you, Steve, the closest we've got to it is that somehow at the very heart and essence of God in classical theism is the idea of relationship and, and unity in relationship. That's a good thing. But that's not quite what the Trinity is theologically, but that's as far as I think we, we'd go in popular theism. Uh, in popular theism, God directly creates and sustains and becomes directly involved in the universe, in human affairs, individually, nationally, and communally. Isn't that right? God directly, through whatever mechanism he may have chosen, he may have chosen, God created the universe, God sustains it and all life, and God is directly involved in the course of human history, um, in your life, in my life, in, in uh, the, lives of an, uh, the life of a nation, and so on. God answers prayers. First of all, God is to be prayed to, and God answers prayers. What's the standard thing that we're told with regard to the way in which God answers prayers? Yes, no, or? Yes, no, or? Well, he can't fail, can he? <laughs> If I got off with that with my kids when they were growing up, never mind now. Uh, yes, no, or, well, after you're dead, I'll let you know. Uh, who knows? Uh, but that's, that, that's standard Christian, popular Christian theism. Uh, God is to be obeyed, yeah, because God has set out definite, specific right and wrong things, and we're to obey the right, and we're to eschew, I love that word, we are to eschew the bad. And God is to be worshipped. 
So we are to tell God how good he is and how much we love him for being so good and then to tell him how good he is again, how big he is and how great he is. Uh, and then we'll use terms like, you know, king and sovereign and uh, majesty and all of that to, to do all of that. And then all of this is bound up in the Jesus is God incarnate bit uh, because Jesus is God incarnate because uh, Jesus as God incarnate was sent to earth for our salvation. And that's the bit we'll be looking at next week. So I'm not going to say any more about that. But that's sort of popular theism, isn't it? That's sort of the, the, the faith that uh, all churches adhere to and all churches teach. Now, I think there are problems with that. And if people don't have problems with it, that's fine, as I keep on saying. And I make no apology for keeping on saying it because no part of my life is to upset anybody else's life, life except my poor wife, because uh, that's what she bought into when she married me. Uh, I will be a thorn in her side and a pebble in her shoe till death us do part. That was actually my vow in my head, if not what came out of my mind. I've got to say this about a poor woman, poor Hillary. She is simply the only person in this universe that can put up with me consistently day after day. So she deserves 27,000 billion medals. So, yeah, do you know, Steve, I'll tell you the honest truth. Yeah. I know you, you will edit out that nice little thing. No, do you think she's going to listen to a podcast of me speaking? Not a chance. So I'm really not. I'm really not. Anyway, so now I think there are problems with that. Uh, first of all, the idea that God is a person. If the only way really we can think of persons is the persons that we know, even if we say that that's not the way we mean it when we talk of God being a person. Uh, and the best sort of theologians who, who would say this will say, well, it's the other way around. Uh, God is the person and we are the tiny sort of shadowy bits, images of the person. But even that doesn't really help because we've still only got the shadowy imagey bits to go on when we think of what the full person might be. So to me, that seems like that's an analogy. I love analogies, nothing wrong with them, but it's really important that we recognize that that's what they are. So it's not that God is a person. What we're really saying there is in some circumstances, it might be helpful to think of God being like a person. And I can sort of, sort of live with that, but only in a way that I'll explain uh, towards the end of the 17-hour talk. But if we say immediately that the idea of God being a person is an analogy, we must ask ourselves the twin questions. Is it a very good analogy? Or is it only good in some circumstances? Uh, is it accurate or useful? And the answer is not automatically Yes, because no analogies are. If we say God is triune, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and in fairness, it took a long time in the conscience of the church to shoehorn the Holy Spirit into the Trinity. So it was the binary, I suppose, I don't know, or binary, I don't know what you would call it, uh, duality. Uh, and then it became the Trinity. 
Why not the quadrality or the quinity? Can we say the sexity? Because that just sounds all wrong, doesn't it? Why not the zillionity? Why stop at trinity? And the truth of the matter is, even in, in the best of the classical theists, they go, yeah. The reason why we say Trinity is because to us, our experience of God is Father, Son, and Spirit. And we take a step of faith to say that if that's how God has revealed God's self to us, then that must be how God actually is in God's self. I don't think that follows. Even if it were the case that God has revealed God's self to us as Father, Son, and Spirit, even if that's the case, why should there not be other, whatever there is within the Trinity, persons uh, within the Trinity? Why three? Did it make sense to you, Steve? So anyway, it seems to me that there's a problem there. Uh, The problem might not be insurmountable, but to me it seems that there, there are difficulties there. The idea of God directly creating the universe, human beings, and everything within the universe, to my mind, creates difficulties as well. And those difficulties are only exacerbated rather than helped by the thought that the mechanism that God used to create the universe was evolution uh, or, you know, quantum physics or whatever it might be, uh, biochemistry, uh, because frankly, that's a very odd way to create anything. That's a very peculiar way to create anything. Uh, If the idea of God being omnipotent and knowing everything and being all powerful and so on, uh, such a being opting for evolution as a method or even worse sort of you know direct creation uh, as a method certainly creates problems in my mind in evolution there is so much waste there is so much suffering and pain so much death uh, so much horror in the universe, allied with the beauty and the love and the wonder. It's enough, certainly, to raise in my mind a big question mark about the idea of God being creator in that sense. When we look at the idea of God sustaining and being directly involved in, in human affairs, it's really hard to look at the Holocaust It's really hard to think of those six million people as an example, most of whom most certainly prayed for deliverance, to be saved, for their children not to be thrown into um, gas chambers or onto furnaces or, you know, we don't need to go into the detail of it. I have a difficulty with any faith, to be honest with you, that that isn't absolutely bashed by the enormity of that. Or, putting it in our context today, the events surrounding the life of that little child, Arthur. 
the ready belief that God is involved intimately with every person in a sort of directive, direct involvement way. From little baby P of uh, a number of um, years ago to that little child Arthur to Schindler's List and the Holocaust and the famine and atrocity after atrocity after atrocity still going on around the world. It's again the old Irish thing, you know, if we're trying to think of what God is like, we wouldn't start from here. Uh, if we look at the huge mess and suffering, we wouldn't instantly go, well, thank God there is a God who's directly involved in all of this. Maybe we could ask the question, is that actually so? Which leads us on to the follow-up. In what consistent and meaningful way does God answer prayers? Do you know, I, I used to say when we pray, you know, God is not in charge of customer service in heaven. Well, it's just as well. But we are taught and told that not only is it heresy, but it's really demeaning to God and it's wrong to doubt the thought that God answers every prayer. And yet, I've got to say, it's like the emperor's clothes. Somebody needs to go, well, show me the answer to prayer there. And sometimes we can say, well, and this is no doubt true, uh, people gain strength from the suffering that they were going through, but very often they don't. Uh, and people die horrible deaths, natural deaths, uh, in the bodies that God created in the first place. And there, at the very least, I think, is enough there to say, could that be right? Might there be a different way of looking at this other than the thought that God answers prayers in that direct way. Now, if, if God does give us direct commands that this is right and this is wrong, then it does make sense, I, I will accept, to say that we should obey God. The difficulty is working out where, where are those commands and which ones are they? Now, accepting apart from the really, really good, big and important one, uh, which is love one another, that sounds a really good one, Trouble is, nobody quite agrees what that means. And when it's, you know, worked down uh, in, into reality, uh, we kind of, you know, folk like Oliver Cromwell saying that he was really slaughtering the Catholics in Ireland for their own good. Or people being brought um, as heretics to the stake to be burned alive, very often in slow and terrible pain, not always, you know, in, in quick uh, bonfires, uh, because it was for their own good. It was a loving thing to do. So while it does make sense, if God has given us direct commands to obey them, it's not that easy to find out where those direct commands are. As we very well know, if we take you know, our own situation here, almost all of us in this room, I suspect who are around and alive and adults, 40 years ago, we'd almost certainly have believed, or many of us would, that it was a command of God that um, uh, gay men uh, must not have 
personal, intimate, sexual relationships with one another. That's a command from God. I'm going to go out way on a limb and say that uh, most of us, if not all of us in this room, would say that was wrong. We disagree with that. So it is quite difficult if we're saying our, jo our job is to obey God, uh, but we've got to know what the commands are and the commandments are to obey them. So at least there's a lot of wriggle room, although at least in theory I can see that it makes sense. But this I cannot get. I never could get from, from an early stage. Why would God want to be worshipped? Now, I get why we want to worship God, but I cannot get why God would want to be worshipped. So at the very least, it does seem to me uh, that all of those commands and strictures in, in the scriptures where God is saying, worship me, bow down. <laughs> um, you know, I've got two wonderful dogs and I, I play that with them. You know, I will get one of them, Meryl, our, our lab collie, and I will, I, I will go, abase yourself. <laughs> and she lie down, <laughs> put her tummy up to be rubbed. <laughs> That's me playing with my dog. I mean, the, the very thought that in some way any divine being would want to be worshipped, never mind need to be worshipped, surely has got a huge question mark over it. But that doesn't mean to say that I don't understand uh, that I, yeah, it doesn't mean to say that I don't understand too many negatives in that statement, uh, that we want to worship something uh, bigger and better than ourselves. But that's not quite the same thing. And next week we'll get on to issues of salvation, heaven, hell, punishment, reward, and all of those things. But that's next week's when we look at uh, from atonement to love. Now, if all the things that I've mentioned don't raise an eyebrow in somebody who might be listening or in your good selves, that's fine. Because, of course, there are intricate answers and arguments and counter-arguments that people write all the time about all of those things. Uh, and if people end up saying, well, in spite of me saying, but what about, but what about, but what about, uh, people come back and say, well, because, 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 or ultimately the catch-all answer, well, you've just got to have faith. If that works for people, that's fine. And that's, i got to say, would have been my um, stock and trade for many years. Initially, it would have been because I was told it. You just have to have faith. Uh, and then I would have spent years as, uh, uh, in, in apologetics, I suppose, arguing through all the intricacies of that. And poor Steve, uh, you're at least in, in some classes where we tried to do that together, I'd like to think. Uh, and then eventually, I, I at least had to go, no, I've run out of it. I've run out of arguments. I, I'm not convinced by myself anymore. I'm not convinced by the arguments. I'm not convinced by what I've been reading. Is there an alternative? And I want to finish off tonight by suggesting one possible route or series of routes for an alternative understanding uh, of God, the Trinity, incarnation. And again, it's not that I want to say those things were wrong. They were very helpful and useful, I think, in their own context, but we're in a different context now. So first thing I want to say is this. What if, because alternatives are always what ifs. First, what if? What if God is not a person? What if God is not a person? But God is beyond person. God is beyond consciousness. 
beyond mind and matter. What if God is what I'm now terming the highest expression of reality that exists? And we don't know what that is. Because if we knew what the highest expression of reality that exists is, it's almost certainly not the highest expression of reality that exists. It's certainly not us. It's certainly not something that is us made bigger. Because when we think of the universe and the multiverse, and maybe a multiverse of multiverses, the highest expression of reality that exists in all of that is beyond. So what if God is beyond? God is beyond God, as we use the term. And that's why I ended up last week saying, I've coined a little term which I like to think is all of my own, which is we are not theists or atheists. We are meta-theists. We're beyond theism. And truth to be told, that actually is pretty close to what the classical theists, Thomas Aquinas and the lads, actually taught. But that's another story for, an, for another day. We can't define God because we cannot define what is beyond. We cannot describe God because we cannot describe what is beyond. Beyond is always beyond. But beyond is never less than. Beyond is never less than. So beyond is never less than the very biggest and best version of me that I can think of. So God is not that, but God is not less than that. God is not any of the metaphors that we might like to use. Light, Father, Lord, Savior, whatever we might say. God is beyond, but never less than. And therein, I think, is a really, really important thing that I've been banging around, certainly in my head and my heart and my soul and spirit and all the other bits of me. Uh, Roy that there might be to try to really let it infuse me that I think liberal Protestantism liberal theology gets it wrong because it ends up with a God is beyond but it falls into the trap of God is always less than somehow it's only when we embrace the mystery the impossibility of describing, understanding, defining that, but always understanding that being beyond means never, ever less than. And I would suggest that if we understand as God as being beyond and there being nothing that God isn't, but God is beyond that, then we are within that beyond and that beyond infuses us so the first place that we look to when we want to find God is inward because we are infused by that all-encompassing beyond reality 
And we are swimming in that all-encompassing beyond reality. We look in. We look out to other people. We look beyond. And that language, you might say, is, well, that's not very helpful because it doesn't actually mean anything. Well, that's right. Because God is beyond language. So it really brings us to our intuition, to our encounters, to our sense that the God that is beyond and the God that is within is the God that Jesus knew, is the God that we have all struggled to know. And it's fine, uh, you know, to use uh, th things like, you know, God is Father, God is Light, and so on, as metaphors, as long as we understand that's all they are. Uh, they're only metaphors. But if we get this idea that there is nothing, there is nothing that in some sense isn't God, there is nothing that is in any sense outside of God. Because if there's anything outside of God, then God is not beyond. There's something independent of or from God. So even the greatest monsters that we can, might think of, the Hitlers and the Stalins, who are probably uh, no bigger monsters in their own hearts than maybe many of us are. They just had a greater opportunity to live out their monstrosities that they're not beyond God. They're not outside God. God was in and through them, and they were swimming in the sea that is God as well. Then I think we begin to just dip our toes in, in the water of mystery and wonder and motivation an understanding of how we are related, understanding of why what I do matters, not just to me, but also to God, but also to other people. As we'll see next week, I suspect it has a, a huge amount to say about the idea of um, what happens to us when our biology falls apart. Uh, and many of us feel that our biology is falling apart uh, pretty badly already. And to my mind, that makes much more sense of the idea that God is one, and yet God is also not one. The thing that the Trinity is hinting at. It makes more sense to me the idea that Jesus and God were one. That people looked at Jesus and saw God. But that should be true for me and you, Steve, and everybody else in this room. Yes, and isn't exactly what Jesus said, that you would be one as I am the Father. Yeah. So, Je so Jesus is God incarnate, because we all are. Exactly, yeah. We are all God incarnate, just most of us make a really bad stab at it. We're really bad versions of God incarnate. We cannot but be. But we look at Jesus and we go, well... I think he got it pretty right. There's someone that when I look, at, uh, people looked at him, at least when some people looked at him anyway, they believed that they saw God and experienced God. Moving towards the end of this, uh, you know, how, how might we then relate 
to that sort of God. And I've just said enough to hint uh, at, at, at this road of exploration that we might want to go down and spend the rest of forever doing. Well, in, in terms of Alpha and Omega, I, I suggest it's actually much more helpful to think of God in terms of Omega than Alpha. In other words, God is the end point of where we're going. God is the light that we're drawn to. Uh, and if we think, I, I know the, the Christian scriptures say God is Alpha and uh, Omega. Uh, I'm not saying that's not the case, but we often get caught up in the whole alphabet of God beginning everything and being the foundation of everything. Uh, and along with Teilhard de Chardin, the, the, the French theologian, I think there's an enormous amount to begin by focusing much more on the idea of God being the omega, the end point of the universe, the end point of all history, the end point of every one of us in something that is indescribably beyond. And when we talk about God creating, I want to suggest that one way of thinking, a better way of thinking about God creating than thinking of God creating the molecules and the atoms and the subatoms and the laws of mathematics and physics and so on, is that God creates meaning. God creates purpose. God creates beauty. God creates something out of all this stuff that we are and all this stuff in the world around us. And in the evil and in the suffering that is part of the biology and the physics of this universe, God is taking that and creating something else, creating something beyond. When we think of God sustaining, I want to suggest a good way of thinking of it is that God sustains us because he sets, God sets, as it were, or this concept of God sets a vision before us. And we're sustained by the vision. I want to suggest that God does not act for us. God does not intervene. God draws us. God draws us beyond ourselves. To be better than ourselves. To work for other people. To have something that is magnetically, spiritually attractive. Even when we don't know what that might be. I want to suggest that if I can use the term want, and, and that's using an, an analogy and a metaphor I know, God does not want obedience. God wants, in inverted commas, participation. God doesn't want us to obey God. God wants us to be part of the beyondness that is the highest expression of reality that exists, which is beyond love beyond goodness, beyond grace, beyond beauty. But remember, never less than. God does not want, if I can use that term again, prayer. God wants union. Not to, to us be asking, and da, 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 but rather to be in our minds, in our hearts, in our spirits, in our bodies, united with that great beyond and we could use the analogy of spirit uh, and then lastly in this little list I would suggest 
God does not want worship. God wants celebration. God wants celebration of the dance that is life, that is reality, that is the multiverse, that is your family, that is your heart, that is everything within you and beyond you. If we want to talk of worship, let's think of it in terms of celebration, uh, not abase yourself. <laughs> not me playing with my dog, but the other way I play with her, which is, you know, grab her and swing her around. Not by her paws, you, you understand. In my arms, swinging around and playing with her and rolling around in a bed with her, whatever it might be. God wants celebration. Now, the last thing I just want to say in all of that is somebody might say, okay, I can sort of see where that's going, but does that still sound a bit like, you know, the God of the philosophers, you know? Uh, how do I actually relate to that? Well, I'll use my little doggy illustration again. My two dogs, Merrill and Riley, just relate to me as dogs. They know exactly who and what they are. Well, they don't because they're dogs. So they just relate as dogs. They don't try. Well, actually, one of them does try, I think, to pretend that he's a human sometimes. But uh, So he does copy things. That's true. But essentially, I don't know what a dog thinks a human being is. Uh, or how a dog, whatever's going on in that little lemon-sized brain that, that a dog has. Uh, no idea. And so it's entirely right and appropriate that when we think of relating to this God that is beyond, we do use all sorts of figures and metaphors and analogies. And if they work for us, that's great. And if it helps in our thinking to call God Lord or Father or mother, or, or lover, or friend, or light, then let, let's do it. Let's embrace that, because that's our experience. But let's remember that's all that that is. That's just a little metaphor. That's us relating as human beings in the way that we know how, just as my dogs relate to me in the only way that they know how, which is as dogs. And at that point, we leave it. Back to the little poem at the start, explained. 